Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Hello and welcome to the show, Cybersecurity, Where You Are. I'm Sean Atkinson, CISO here at the Center for Internet Security. And in celebration of Data Privacy Week, uh, January 21st through the 27th of, of this year, 2024, I have two experts um, that we're going to review really the nexus of privacy regulation and alignment to cybersecurity legislation. And so uh, we have Brian DeValance and Carlos Kizzy here with us. Uh, great to meet both of you and uh, have a very interesting review and some topics that I think uh, our listeners will uh, certainly um, look towards in terms of navigating this respective landscape and looking at uh, how the intersection of privacy and cybersecurity uh, come into play. But with that, uh, Brian, um, would you mind giving us a quick uh, introduction? Sure, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Brian DeValance again. I work at uh, with CIS on a lot of policy and outreach issues, mostly concerning sort of watching what United States Congress does, what happens in the federal executive branch and then in the state and local uh, legislative uh, uh, bodies, as well as the uh, state houses. Before that, uh, I'd worked uh, at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security in a couple of capacities, the last of which being Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs, and then done a little bit of work for state governments, city governments, and the federal government. I worked at the U.S. Department of Justice. Glad to be here and uh, see if we can uh, add something to uh, this interesting privacy debate, which has uh, actually gotten pretty intense in the last few years, and it's a, a good topic to be talking about today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Carlos. Thank you very much, Sean. It's a privilege to be here with you and Brian. I'm Carlos Kizzee. I'm the Senior Vice President for the Multi-State ISAC, Information Sharing Analysis Center. Uh, strategy and plans is the area that I work primarily in, uh, in the MSISAC. Uh, and previously, I've uh, worked in retail and hospitality with the Retail and Hospitality Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Before that, with the National Defense Information Sharing and Analysis Center, similar roles uh, working with members and, and uh, po uh, policy issues and uh, plans for member engagement and activity. Before that, I worked with the Department of Homeland Security uh, and uh, worked uh, primarily in uh, cybersecurity and, and communications and handling policy uh, issues and strategic plans and new initiatives. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you both here because we we enter into the privacy realm, and I'll give a you know my thoughts on where I see elements um, in play. And I'd love to get your perspectives. And you know, I when I've talked to both of you, you know, my watershed moment was May twenty fifth, twenty eighteen. Right, GDPR comes into play. It's setting a new tone internationally. There's extraterritoriality. There are different elements and. We've then started to see with California moving in similar directions in other states, and we're starting to see a velocity in that space. And, and one of the elements there that we see is that um, it introduces elements of cybersecurity because you can't have privacy without the necessarily digital protections and management around it. Brian, I want to get your thoughts on, on where you see um, these watershed moments and maybe even potentially the interaction of privacy 
privacy and cybersecurity in the space. Yeah, thank you, Sean. And, and you're, you uh, have a great point with how both the GDPR and uh, the California Privacy Act have really started a privacy revolution in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, <clears throat> it's become increasingly important, I think, to secure individual privacy and data security in the face of all this advancement that's been going on in technology uh, over the last you know, 10, 15 years, especially. Uh, and sort of the capacity uh, and the capability of some of these huge tech firms to make use of that data, sometimes without the data subjects even knowing about it. And so um, I think obviously the state of California uh, in 2018, the EU in 2016, I think that really kicked that off. And since then, what you've seen is, uh, in, at least in the United States, uh, 14 U.S. states, including New Jersey, where Governor Murphy just signed uh, the bill into law, I think two days ago, have adopted comprehensive data privacy statutes or similar laws. And so much like, similar to the GDPR laws, the, these comprehensive data privacy laws provide rights to consumers, uh, like the right to access, uh, uh, to be able to correct inaccuracies, delete and obtain copies of, and maybe opt out of sort of the personal data that's held by um, some of these uh uh, entities. Uh, in addition to those 14 states, three states, uh, Connecticut, uh, Nevada, and Washington, have passed data privacy laws that are sector-specific to health data. So really, when you look at it, since California passed its law in 2018, where and it became uh, effective in 2020, we've had 17 states uh, actually passing data privacy. So it really has kind of kicked off an, an, a, a real revolution. And these basically, that is an interesting contrast to the federal government, because in the federal government, there are only really two laws that impact privacy. There's the Privacy Act of 1974, and then there's another uh, act, I think it's called the E-Government Act of 2021. The two of them sort of impact the federal laws as it relates to privacy, but really there's no overarching federal privacy law that uh, governs the collection and sale of personal information uh, in private sector companies. Um, <clears throat> there's also no federal statute that gives consumers the right to learn about what information is held about them for marketing purposes and who holds that. So um, it's really, since the federal government doesn't have much, obviously there have been movement over the course of the last five or 10 years to try to make something happen that's just nothing been successful yet. But it's really fallen to the states to become, as uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said almost 100 years ago, the laboratories of democracy. And uh, as shown by these 17 data privacy acts, they are actually starting uh, to, to act. And just one other point to your question, Sean, and that is privacy acts actually all contain uh, a cybersecurity requirement that um, people who hold the PII must use reasonable cybersecurity to protect that data. And this is really a cyber Trojan horse because much like uh, there have been very few cybersecurity laws, express cybersecurity laws passed by Congress, um, not many state legislatures have passed uh, cybersecurity laws too. But now because um, in order to pr protect uh, privacy in, the, in today's age, you have to protect your networks because that's where this privacy information is, is, is kept. And so now these privacy laws have sort of uh, created these cybersecurity requirements uh, and now in over a third of the U.S. states. This, in, you know, I like to think of this as sort of a, a cyber Trojan horse, if you will, because they weren't necessarily intended to be cyber laws, but they're now um, uh, on their way to becoming uh, a majority of the states in the United States who have these uh, privacy and cyber bills. So there is that nexus between the two. And now the next thing that we need to do is uh, look at is uh, uh, what constitutes reasonable security. So more on that in a little bit. I mean, I, Sean, if I can, I really like, Brian, how you, uh, you know, you, how you define this evolution. 
I, I see, you know, the focus of the current uh, legislative uh, environment that we're in basically assigning uh, some responsibility uh, that the consumer can't uh, protect themselves. And, you know, this in, increase in the ability to maintain data and the increase in the ability for that data to be used in a bunch of different ways without a consumer's knowledge or awareness, but then also the increase in potential liability if that data is accessed or misused. Uh, so, you know, these law, the laws that are coming about GDPR and others are assigning some responsibility that are protecting the consumers uh, in an area where they can't protect themselves. No, you're absolutely right. And if I could add to that, Carlos, you're exactly right. And, and uh, uh, we've talked about this before. You know, uh, there's been an opportunity for these uh, private sector companies to provide this protection, but they haven't. And so, as I've liked to kid about uh, this, is that, uh, you know, companies are like my kids, you know, that they'll only do things if you make them do it or if you pay them to do it. And, um, uh, you know, the federal government is certainly not going to pay uh, private sector companies in this country to uh, protect people's privacy or their cybersecurity. So it almost has to come down to sensible uh, uh, regulations to require it. And uh, once that happens, then I think, uh, uh, as you say, Carlos, uh, folks will enjoy those protections that I think we've certainly in the United States have become to expect uh, as our sort of uh, uh, our right to privacy. So um, uh, it's an excellent point you make, Carlos. Completely agree. Uh, you no, know, it's really good because one of the things that I see, and you know, when we look at uh, geographic differences in terms of the way privacy is handled and even managed, is really a um, an alignment to better approaches for this. And I I often call this the the EULA clause because in some cases and. We've all done it when we're signing up for new software. It's, yeah, I'm going to read through, you know, the microscopic text and understand my rights all the way through. You know, I've got my law degree. I don't have one. Um, and I'm going to be able to understand all of these things. No, I'm going to click accept, walk through, let me get access to the form, function, service, product, whatever it happens to be. And with these elements, I think it's now taking a, um, a better, more reflective approach of, even with such elements and, and you know, that the uh, kind of the big data uh, revolution that we have, um, you know, seen through the enablement through technology, it's these are put into, again, provide protections in terms of if you want to exercise these rights, um, that there is a vehicle to do them and use them responsibly. And you often see um, organizations and, and you're, you know, again, uh, Brian, to align to your thoughts there is either uh, you're going to force me or pay me to do it is this ability to address organizational responsibility. But then I think the onus is this reasonableness element. And, and you often see it and it's um, where is it making sense for organizations to apply? Because one of the problems that I see is I'll call it default compliance. And this is where the most restrictive is going to be where I set my standard and everything else I just comply with because it's not necessarily have the same um, um, controls or the same level of reasonableness um, in terms of my underlying posture. And it, it seems like uh, we're tracking towards, well, now, you know, there's another state, New Jersey, two days ago. Okay, I've got to put that into my 2024 plan for when is that going to become active? I have to read through it. Is it more restrictive than Virginia, Colorado, Utah, you know, et cetera, where I've set my standard in terms of these controls? And it seems like that's uh, 
you know, are we going to have to do this for every state uh, once they, you know, uh, enact a respective privacy um, legislation? What do we think? Well, I, I'd like to say one one positive thing um, is reasonableness may not be clearly defined, but it does require uh, more awareness, heightened awareness to, to anticipate what does re- what is reasonable, what might be construed as reasonable. So, you know, one, one argument that I've, I've heard from multiple people when they're talking about, you know, California, Utah, Virginia, my state and, and other states and, and the differences um, in, ter- in terminology and, and so on or in how the terms are um, uh, interpreted. Uh, it forces what you've said. It forces kind of, well, let me pick the, the most stringent one and apply that. Uh, but even in having to do that, it, it I, I think the positive aspect of that is it's requiring organizations to consider what they are doing, uh, how they would define what they are doing as reasonable, and what they could or should do in light of the potential liability or responsibility of an enforcement action. I completely agree. It's required a reaction to the fact that these exist. And I think the potency, uh, and again, if we want to reflect on this, is through the fact if you don't do anything or what you have done is not reasonable in the eyes of uh, you know, an assessment or the uh, member, customer, whatever it happens to be, that there are consequences. This is enforceable through fine and uh, these elements. And I think that's where I see a difference in terms of elements of cybersecurity coming through different policy and acts. This one takes it to a different level, and here's the requirement, and here's the consequence, and you're going to have to assess the risk of noncompliance versus aligning organizational principles to uh, more appropriate privacy. And to Brian's point, um, you know, the Trojan horse cybersecurity controls. And those affect so many different systems that process underlying data from a PII perspective, that the consequences that that then permeates to um, really other systems within your infrastructure, because it's the utility, it's the storage, it's the processing, all of that, uh, you know, can permeate pretty much um, all of the infrastructure of a uh, an entity. And it, taking into account, you used the term uh, earlier about, you know, the responsibility of the business entity. Um, the, the, the regular, the legislation generally also requires that responsibility to extend to third parties. So you can't kind of hide behind the not me. You know, it, it's that, that other guy we hired, you know, type of uh, situation, uh, because there's an affirmative obligation to pass on, uh, the standards and controls and the oversight to third parties through, through contractual activity. Absolutely. You've got privacy cascading. Uh, throughout your infrastructure and supply chain. Wonderful. Brian? I was just going to come back, uh, Sean, to your uh, and Carlos's point about getting back to this reasonable uh, uh, security that's uh, now required in these uh, now 17 state laws. The next, I think the ne- this next phase, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be to sort of define what this reasonable security requirement is. Actually, uh, CIS is uh, undertaking a project to help uh, uh, litigants and uh, businesses and others sort of define that, but it really is going to be the next. Uh, it's almost like you know the the, um, the legislatures have heard the concerns of the people and they've acted and they've done a really good job of of, of protecting uh, these rights. But now, uh, um, really, it's going to be up to uh, uh, us to kind of figure out well how how is that actually going to happen? And so obviously, we have a couple of things to rely on uh, in the common law. 
um, <clears throat> Carlos remembers this from his day, days as a lawyer, um, um, really you have this sort of duty of due care and you know, what would a reasonable person do. And so in some cases, you know, when these things are being enforced, as you mentioned, or are being litigated uh, by uh, state attorneys general who will go after maybe a company for not exercising reasonable cybersecurity, they'll be trying to sort of determine whether a company exercised this, you know, uh, did what a reasonable person would do. And what does that mean? Well, again, absent clear language in the law, um, it's going to be a bit of a battle of the experts, but you're going to, uh, you know, if you're a company that's uh, that's being uh, accused of not express, uh, extending uh, the privacy rights, uh, that company's going to say, well, look, I, I did what a reasonable person did. I, I had a uh, you know computer network, I had a CIO, I had a CISO, uh, we had a plan, et cetera. Uh, and they're going to look to sort of industry standards to to see if those industry standards were, were applied, like the CIS critical security controls or something like that. So it's going to be up to the, the company and both sides of the fight, if you will, the people who say that they weren't uh, protected and the people who say, no, we, we did protect our, our, our customers' uh, PII. But it's also going to be up to the company, too, because there are going to be different levels of standards, right? So, um, you know, a big uh, um, you know, defense contractor is going to have a di- much different standard than sort of the local pizza place down the street, right? So um, I think that uh, it's it's going to be up to the individual uh, company, uh, and it's going to be in uh, and what they've done, and it's going to be um, uh, uh, up to sort of the circumstances of the situation. So it's going to be a bit of a mess to dig up, dig out until we end up finding sort of a national um, uh, minimum standard of information security uh, that gets done at, at the national level. Uh, and cutting across all of the sectors, and we don't have that right now, uh, and so that'll clean things up. But that's going to—that's that's that's many years in the offing. That's an excellent analysis. I, I wonder though, like I like the reference to the CIS controls just as an example because the controls are threat informed uh, and and they're you know prioritized. Do you think that um, due care, uh, a determination of due care by the courts in this area? is going to be aligned closely enough to this evolving, ever-evolving threat environment that we're in, where threat actors get more and more sophisticated, they leverage new tools, they're very innovative, that type of thing, or will we always be behind that? Great question. I, I would say from from uh, our perspective, a couple of things. For, first of all, um, I, I think what you've got here, it, I you know, the law is always a bit of a lagging indicator of what's what people, what our citizens expect. And, uh, and so you're right. I think it's going to be, uh, kind of fought out in, in the, uh, in the courts perhaps at first. Uh, I think after a while, when some of the courts, uh, and enforcement actions in, di- in all these different states come out, uh, you'll end up seeing like the FTC has created a body of work, uh, <clears throat> that, uh, sort of informs and helps regulate in the, uh, you know, fair trade uh, uh, practices, et cetera. And I think that you'll end up seeing this. You'll see probably California, since their law is the oldest, will probably go first with some enforcement actions and say, you didn't do this. There'll be a bit of a battle. Uh, they'll win or lose. And there uh, come these standards that come come from that. One of the things that we're looking at in this project that we're, um, I mentioned about defining reasonable security is that you know we're looking at some of these other state laws, not the privacy laws, but there are four or five laws uh, in some states now, um, four of which are called uh, safe harbor laws. And these are laws that incentivize the voluntary adoption of cyber best practice. And they basically say, we're not going to require it. It's not a regulatory action, 
But if you do a best practice, uh, uh, sort of an industry best practice, and you implement it and you really try to do the right thing and you still have a breach and you get sued because of that breach, you should be able to have an affirmative defense or a cap on punitive damages or something that would kind of uh, limit your liability because you have been uh, shown to do the right thing. And so these safe harbor laws uh, point to some of these industry best practices like the NIST framework, uh, the CIS controls, ISO, and several of these other sort of, again, industry best practices. And so I think what you're going to see, Carlos, is that people are going to have to fight it out in these individual states. Uh, but after a couple of these cases get heard and people are pointing to some of these, what constitutes reasonable security, and you have some winners and losers, that's going to, I think, set the bar for, uh, again, what we lack, having this minimum standard uh, that goes all across all the states and all the sectors, a minimum standard of information security. If we had that, that would be easy. But until we get there, we're going to have to kind of go uh, state by state. But I, th- but I think from that, you're going to get um, some good indications uh, where in these states, Um, people can point to, this looks like it's the right thing to do. Uh, And if you do something like this, you're going to be okay. Wonderful. Now, I think it makes, um, and again, uh, the way you align to that, Brian, and articulate it is um, excellent. Because I think in some cases, and the way I see cybersecurity is this, is the velocity of change is so much that no matter, if I do everything right, there is always a potential wrong just due to the vulnerabilities that have been identified, the threat. You know, ultimately, the, the adage I'll use is if someone wants in, they'll get in. It's just a matter of time, resources, and the capability. And with that, you know, comes these elements of, hey, I did everything I thought reasonable. There was a plan. There was action. There was activity. There was monitoring. It just so happens, you know, there was a vulnerability that's either not identified, we weren't aware, there's a, you know, a threat-based um, option that's missing that we didn't see, and, you know, they we were compromised. And it's, you know, it's hard to come back from these elements where we want to turn the tables and say it's, you know, obviously there, there was a loss, whatever the impact happens to be, but it's these lessons that we need to learn as organizations and share and start building communities in the space that will allow us to, one, understand what is reasonable, and then two, be able to react in kind in terms of support. And, you know, as a support agency through the work that we do through the MS and EII SEC, um, you know, Carlos, I'll reflect this is, uh, you know, we see that all the time, that there's a lot of these elements where we're, you know, trying to support, we're using best practice, and then we're using the lessons learned and these case studies to apply across those that need uh, this type of assistance, because in a lot of cases, they don't have the, the talent, as it were, to be able to apply these respective controls, whether it comes from privacy or whether it's just reasonableness in terms of security implementation. Any thoughts, Carlos? Oh, absolutely. I, I love how you articulate that and also how you uh, kind of bring it into the realm that we, we work in in the multi-state ISAC and the elections infrastructure ISAC. Uh, you know, uh, when we're talking about the privacy laws, the consumer privacy laws, um, businesses can suffer, you know, uh, fines, as you said, reputational harm, things like that. Uh, and so they make a business-based decision to invest uh, in what is reasonable, what we've been talking about, you know, achieving that reasonability. In the public sector environment, there's maybe a l- little bit of a different dynamic, especially when we're talking about uh, states and localities, uh, municipalities, entities that, you know, their revenue source is a tax base. 
uh, and so they can't, you know, sort of um, uh, raise the, the, the cost of, of, of a service. And they, you know, they depend on citizen trust in, in their capabilities. There is an interesting dynamic when you look at what, um, from my background working in retail, what the CISOs are doing in that sector uh, in response to the consumer rights and, and privacy laws and what uh, CISOs like yourself, Sean, are doing in, uh, you know, the public sector environment. Uh, the challenge is having resources to, to do something and, and ensuring that non-technical people are applying uh, the right measure of awareness and controls and doing that in an environment where their concern isn't uh, a fine or enforcement. It's not a part of the business environment. It's just a part of, you know, citizen trust and we need to do business better. It's interesting because I see that there, you know, when I was in the federal government, we looked at uh, privacy as a compliance issue. Uh, but it's something a little bit different than compliance. It, it, it is sort of being innovative and working towards uh, what we need to do to achieve citizen trust. And I see more and more organizations having to deal with that, uh, both on the public sector and the private sector side. It's an interesting uh, environment that we're in now. We're going through a neat change. Absolutely agreed. And I think the... Uh... You know that that and and you hit on a, a huge point is the value proposition from both a business, but then respectfully citizen awareness and responsibilities are. It, it is a different paradigm in terms of those assessments and the strategies in which to implement. Um, because, like you say, that there's kind of a m monopoly on the element, right? That there is only the one DMV. You know, I, I don't really necessarily have an ability to select different ones. That's it. And so it's when we, um, you know, that's where we face uh, some of the issues is when we think about that is um, how do we then integrate collaborate and provide not only the tools, but the really the essence of why we're doing this. And I, I like the fact that you mentioned, you know, these are compliance activities. But one of the things I've always said, and it's uh, I'm trying to get it as a punchline, but we'll, we'll see where it goes, that um, good cybersecurity, the byproduct of that is compliance, right? If you're doing it right, ultimately, I can you know, aligned to an element of compliance. Now, is it directed at specific frameworks, the CIS controls and different things? Potentially, um, but doing it in this fashion and allowing cybersecurity to permeate through and utilize privacy as a way to then bring out of this awareness, this risk assessment, these business risks, these are not technology risks. These are business risks the organization needs to understand right in wherever you are in whatever sector or parenthetical is that it's truly a business risk that needs to be assessed and uh you know consumed as uh you know as part of the threat assessment what are we trying to do here what are we trying to protect how do we do it reasonably and then how do we also enforce a capability for citizens members customers in order to be able to engage with us at these levels that are required through um you know that the rights that are now provided for rectification to be forgotten um to know what uh, information you have with respect to me it's an interesting proposition um what do you think brian yeah, I think that you're, uh, it's an excellent way to put it. I, I think you're exactly right. I think one of the interesting aspects of this is how these legislatures, as we've talked about, have been pretty successful uh, uh, with privacy uh, um, uh, bills, uh, had not done much on cyber, maybe because there wasn't maybe that much interest or, or people hadn't realized the, uh, uh, the threats, et cetera. 
but it's through people's concern about protecting privacy that we're getting to a point where we're actually protecting networks as well to, in order to protect the privacy. But, you know, uh, the other part about this uh, is that, uh, you know, we're good cybersecurity for, for cybersecurity's sake is, uh, uh, is good for reasons other than just privacy. So, uh, but it leads me to think about, well, um, you know, we've gotten this revolution or evolution of privacy interest and protection. I, I, I noticed it depends on, uh, in many cases, your age. And that is fascinating to me. So I'm, uh, you know, older than my kids, of course. Uh, and I have a very different uh, appreciation for privacy interest and protection, or I, I, I value it differently than my kids do. You know, you've heard uh, some comedians talk about how, uh, you know, kids will give up their social security number to get a dollar off on a Taco Bell, uh, uh, you know, order or something like that, uh, that they don't view it the same. Um, now, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's because they they view and feel that the progress on privacy rights is such that their privacy will be protected or not. Uh, uh, some of us older guys uh, and gals <clears throat> remember sometimes that, you know, um, uh, you know, privacy is a very uh, sacred right. And, uh, you know, um, you know, we were brought up by maybe folks uh, after the World War II that, you know, where there was a great sacrifice in this world to protect our, our rights as humans and citizens. And uh, and so those rights should be uh, safeguarded uh uh, as far as you can. And of course, you've saw the, uh, the evolution and privacy rights for the Constitution over the years as well. So all of these issues, I think, get back to your point, Sean, which is, you know, um, these these are murky areas and, and, and people's perceptions of these things are made up on a hundred different kind of uh, input uh, elements. And, um, uh, you know, we're, we're all, sort of what we're seeing here in the legislative arena is our society's uh, uh, ability uh, an interest in sort of coming to terms with a complicated issue, and um, uh, I, I don't know. It's it's, it's uh, it gets it gets tougher, but I think as we take steps towards doing this, these laws, regulations that come from the laws, <clears throat> the enforcement actions that come from the regulations, you know, it, it, I think in many ways um, is a good thing for sorting all this out, but it also raising expectations for uh, for privacy rights and how they can be defended. So overall, I think it's a a really good process that. It's messy, but I think it's uh, we're on our way. You know, one, one thing that I think is good, and I agree, uh, Brian, great point. It, it, it's messy, but we're headed in a good direction. I like the fact that these laws bleed a bit of transparency uh, into the, the process. There's notification requirements and so on. I'm not sure that there's always, when you talk about the generational differences, um, I'm not sure that there's always a, an appreciation uh, for what that means, but it does, you know, breed a little bit more awareness uh, that, hey, my information might be out there. How is that information now being used? How could that hurt me in some way? When my kids are spending my money, uh, they don't care, <laughs> but maybe when they're spending their money uh, in the future, they'll care a little bit more. I, I do agree, though, that I, I think the laws create a, a better environment uh, that, you know, requires a little bit more awareness, a little bit more contemplation uh, about the impacts of uh, breaches to privacy. Absolutely. I, I'll give a, my thoughts, Brian uh, and Carlos, on the topic. You know, we're in a social sharing environment. I mean, we're the technology is enabling that. And in order to, you know, contribute to that, that it's rewarded in a lot of cases. So, 
you know, where we wouldn't, um, and I'm kind of the same thing, you know, I, I see the rights and, and the privacy elements and just, you know, the open source intelligence that you can gather on a particular person just by doing a Google search is incredible. And so I take it very seriously. And, you know, I'm not necessarily interested in sharing what I had for breakfast or, you know, I stopped by the, the local Starbucks today and here's what I got is, you know, I, I, I'm not, it's not of interest, but for, different generational elements where basically the cell phone has become this, uh, you know, that this privacy moniker, as it were, or providing the rights, more privacy rights to your phone than you do individuals is incredible. And we give it away. And I think these are uh, timely because we need protections in the space, right? It, it's the, it's like the end user license agreement thing all over again, but it's the social contracts that we enter into. And there's, you know, elements of cyber psychology here at play where I've been given a, an ability to do this and I see others doing it. And it's just, you know, kind of the uh, snowball effect as it were. And so till we get to social networks and, and the, the valuations into the billions about really it's, they have no property. It's you sharing your information is the, is the currency, as it were. And they gather data from that, the metrics, the psychometrics that are around that. Very interesting uh, economical elements in this space as well that lead us to the fact that we need an ability to safeguard and protect citizenship and privacy. And uh, as you mentioned, Carlos, the transparency in these processes, you, know, you, you can't do this now in the, necessarily an opaque fashion. I need to see the privacy policy, your privacy notices. What are my rights in terms of how do I contact you in order to exercise these elements? Uh, and respectfully, when that information is not controlled, where's the breach requirement? How long is it before you have to let me know? So we're making people more informed, and that's fantastic. And I think the um, I think the effort then gets into the reasonableness of uh, moving organizations into a posture of better security. I, I'll give one thought in this space. And the reason why I, I think compliance is dangerous and I like cybersecurity frameworks for the essence of cybersecurity, because when I think of PCI, right, very much personal, you know, my buying habits, what I'm sharing. But if I look at the tenants of PCI, very much confidentiality, very much integrity, availability, not necessarily. If those systems are offline, fine, you're not sharing information, I don't care. It's not really part of the process. So if I'm just following a compliance framework and PCI is going to be where I focus, I'm missing elements of complete security. And why, let's just do best practice in security, the byproduct, yes, I've got confidentiality, integrity. I also have availability. It may not be necessary for this particular framework, but it is for my responsibility in terms of that uh, overall organizational uh, capability to protect and uh, you know reasonably respond to threats in the environment. So, Sean, as a result then of the privacy and cybersecurity compliance requirements, you as a CISO, um, you basically are doing more. Uh, you're not just you know, doing the bare minimum to be compliant. You're doing what's necessary. I know you're uh, giving us training. And as a result of the privacy regulations, you're saying that the focus is not so much on just being compliant to one state's regulation, but it's really encompassing business change. Absolutely. You address it as a business risk. And, and then this is where 
you know, the maturation of underlying programs is very, very important because it's not taking the effect of one, but the consequence of missing the other. And that's in terms of, you know, regulatory requirement and then also from a threat assessment. So if I'm thinking more threat-based to reflect to control versus compliance reflecting my control, I'm thinking more about... Um, the negative side of it versus the requirement in order to do work. So you're either going to be forced to do it or it's going to cost you money. And in this case, I want to bring in um, the, the maturity, as it were, in order to address appropriate responses to the environment in which we exist. And, you know, that's coming through cyber threat intelligence. That's coming through um, the perceptions of both the board and leadership in terms of the really the risk tolerance in a lot of areas. Uh, and for me, I don't have a lot of tolerance for not aligning to and being proactive because one of the things I would, you know, advise is if you're not you're in a state, basically you're focused on a single state and that's your kind of your geographic boundary, your fencing. This is where I am. We don't necessarily have a privacy regulation. You have to look at what the other states are doing, as Brian had mentioned, to reflect that you're going to have to be prepared because there's either going to be a federal or that state is going to follow along with the others in terms of introducing these requirements. And it's, uh, I'd say, um, Chance favors the prepared mind. Uh, I, I I have to attribute that to somebody. I just don't know whose quote it is, but uh, um, well, I'll find out. Um, and that gives us the opportunity to be successful in this area. Uh, but it's fleeting because success one day could completely change the next, just given the velocity of uh, what we see in our environment. And you know, Sean, you you mentioned the, the velocity of of this in, uh, of the reaction is a uh, basically. Uh, uh, a, a reaction to the, the velocity of the uh, increase in technology and the rise in technology. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, it's, it's resulted in a rise of privacy, which is, I think, a great thing in general, but especially because of this rise in technology. There's no greater risk that my wallet gets stolen now than in 1970. But you don't need to steal my wallet to find out my address for my date of birth these days. You know, I mean, people can have it in, in pretty much like 18 seconds, you know. So so this rise in technology requires additional safeguards. And we get back to this issue of, <clears throat> of, of, of where those safeguards are going to come from. And uh, we talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, we wish that a lot of these organizations would do it um, um, on their own. Um, but they've needed some sort of, you know, um, uh, hint or help uh, to get there. And, uh, and I, I don't really necessarily blame the companies because, you know, uh, public companies obviously have a fiduciary duty to make money for their shareholders. And so there's got to be a high bar to spend money uh, in all of those corporations uh, uh, if they don't have a direct impact to the bottom line, right? So there's, you know, to spend something on something that's not neat, that doesn't seem to be needed. Um, is difficult to do without a requirement to do so. And so now we're back into that space where, you know, in those uh, 14 or 15 states, I think what you've seen is the people of those states, it's democracy in action. The people are saying, we are concerned with these things. We think that they are not being satisfied quickly enough uh, on their own. And so we need a little help. Uh, and so uh, as a result of that, these legislative bodies, again, part of our democracy, uh, are listening to the people and and, and, and bringing about these requirements. It's a very interesting sort of uh, 
um, balance that you get from uh, input from the citizens, uh, input from the companies. Uh, you know, at the same time, we don't want so much regulation, regulation that the corporations cannot, you know, solve problems, employ people, pay taxes, and all those things that we we look to. So, uh, you know, government has a has a has a tough job, and I think it's reflected in the fact that uh, there's no real federal, um, you know, data, a comprehensive data. Uh, Bill, yet I, th- I think that we'll get there. Uh, and as I said uh, before, the great line from uh, um, Justice Brandeis is that the states are laboratories of democracy. I think that they'll prove in their labs that these are this is what the people are asking for, and that that, that they're demanding. And I think that the feds will end up doing that. I think um, you know, in March of last year, there were I think four states that had comprehensive data, and by October there were thirteen. And so I think we've come to the point. Uh, where um, uh, you asked the question, uh, Sean, at the very beginning, sort of what was uh, uh, what was the impact of uh, uh, GDPR and, and the California uh, Privacy Act uh, coming early? Uh, and you know, I, I think that this, you know, as I mentioned, that this is starting a revolution. I think that you're seeing it's finally taking off. And I would say by this time next year, we're going to probably have more than half the states, uh, maybe even a little bit more than half the states uh, having these. And that, that's that's going to send a signal to Congress and we're going to get there. That gets, Sean, to your point, which is a bit of an issue, and I've heard you raise this today and before, is this sort of how are these different sort of standards going to be enacted uh, and uh, basically uh, supported over the, over the country? And so you're a company, you do business in all 56 states and territories. Uh, you've got 14 different data privacy acts, they're much the same, but they're different, a little bit different. Uh, and then you have many states who don't have them. So do you, do you have one standard in your company? Do you only have standards in the companies that have uh, these, uh, these privacy acts? It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a headache, I think, a compliance headache for, for organizations to deal with that. Uh, that's yet another reason that I think at some point the business community will come together with the privacy community and uh, say, we just, we just need one minimum standard that crosses all the states, that crosses all the sectors. Uh, and it's a minimum standard, uh, and that makes compliance a lot easier. But it's, uh, again, we're in the early stages here. It's interesting to see the effects of uh, just one or two interesting laws that get passed. And next thing you know, uh, there's something that's going on uh, uh, around the world. But um, uh, we'll see where it goes from here. But it's uh, it's headed in the right direction, I think, as we continue to kind of uh, look to sort of see how we can um, uh, protect uh, the personal information of, of our citizens. And Brian, you, you've defined what, what is really an interesting iterative cycle, right? The chicken and the egg, GDPR, which Sean mentioned initially is, is sort of being the wake-up call and, and starting a lot of uh, consumer interest, right? And leading to statutes um, and enforcement actions, which leads to more consumer interest, which, you know, and it creates this cycle uh, where you see more and more legislation. But you add an additional component to that, which is uh, the businesses themselves then may uh, desire uh, some type of comprehensive legislation to make their compliance, uh, you know, a little bit more streamlined and and easier, not taking away from what is reasonable and what they should do, but just giving them sort of, you know, a single pane of glass to look through. That's very, very interesting. Yeah, and when, and and uh, this has been a great conversation. I think Sean, thanks for for having and hosting here today. Uh, but I mean, these themes of sort of like the pros and cons of of of, of this effort, uh, and it's you know it's it, it it it's sort of going on its own now. So we'll see how it evolves in the course of the next couple of years. But we've got definitely the pros are being 
that uh, there's definitely proactive data protection going on in our communities and uh, more and more each year. And then, and then either because of that, or uh, again, back to Carlos's chicken and egg thing, uh, you also have increased public awareness and attention around these risks and, and, you know, what we need to do to protect uh, uh, against uh, 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 bad guys doing bad things. Uh, but there are still a lot of things to resolve, or, or I don't want to say cons, but there are definitely some uh, things that need to be worked out. Uh, you mentioned this, Sean, the lack of harmony among these states that are caused by the regulations, you know, uniform application or not. And so you've got that issue. You've got uh, the different interpretations, perhaps, among courts and regulators. So, you know, California is going to be different from um, than Virginia, uh, for example. And what does that mean for you know, what that standard looks like. It maybe gets further away from being similar as these uh, courts and regulators do their thing. And you've got a lot, lack of guidelines and standards and legal clarity within the text itself. Uh, and then uh, uh, I can't remember, Sean, if it was you or Carlos who mentioned early on, it said like, we have new technologies already uh, to deal with, and that's AI just uh, rearing its head in the last couple of years. And so uh, I'm sure when the EU and California passed their acts, no one thought about what AI meant to privacy rights. And so that's a whole other thing that needs to be uh, uh, yet attacked. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating field. It certainly is. It certainly is. And I can't go without saying it, at least in the episode, um, Brian, to when we get to the complexity. And I'll just t- tell Tony to put it on the tab, but it, it aligns to the fog of more, right? I mean, it's just, it's getting so foggy where we don't have an ability to see the end goal because we've got so many things contributing. And, you know, I always throw the kicker of AI. I appreciate it, Brian, because you're absolutely right. It adds a whole different dimension to these elements and that is, uh, you know, it's now another velocity element, right? It's another variable that we're trying to incorporate into our overall posture assessment and then assessing our risk and how do we respond in kind uh, in order to make sure that we're not only aligning, complying, but we're also um, proactive in our thoughts in that space because you just see these revolutions, as it were, coming so much faster, right? You know, um, I'm one to say quantum, but that's coming along soon. What Does that have any impetus? Does that have any, uh, it may not directly in this area, but there's another ability to then abstract more into our processes of thinking about privacy with really the underlying element of cybersecurity. Gentlemen, absolutely fantastic discussion. I appreciate it so much. It was great. We're, we're going to have to do this again because we've, I think we've only touched the tip of the iceberg uh, on this respective uh, topic. And we'll see. Uh, I think you're right, Brian. I think there's a number of privacy regulations coming through that could change the game again uh, and get us thinking differently in this space. But with that, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to the audience. Uh, any questions or thoughts on the podcast, please reach out to podcasts at cisecurity.org. Again, thank you to Brian and Carlos. Really great. Really appreciate the um, great conversations we've had today. And to the audience, thank you. With that, thank you very much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the show today. The thoughts and opinions expressed by our podcast guests are solely theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of CIS. If you're interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website, cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.